like to ask you a question. We've been in our seven deadly sins series now for seven weeks. We're in our sixth of the seven sins. But even before we get into it, I want to ask you a question that may or may not seem like it fits with what we're doing today. And this is the question. Why are you here? Why are you here? And maybe a better way to, to, to word that question is, is, why are we here? Why do we exist? What purpose do we have here? Why were we even created? Because when we begin to think about that, it's a question I think that has been asked for a long time by lots of philosophers all over the world, by common people for, forever. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Why was I created? And it's got to be, it's got to be more than just living and breathing and dying, right? I mean, it's got to be more than yet, but, but more often than not, we get stuck in just living and breathing and dying. And when people ask that question, I think something they need to understand is this. There's only one place to actually find that answer. We will search all over the globe. We'll search in all sorts of things, but there's only one place to find that answer, and that is only found in the one true living God. And if we look other places, we're only going to be chasing after things that are temporary. And as we chase after things that are temporary, it's going to lead us really honestly to waste our life to when we come to the end, we go, you know what? All that stuff I chased didn't matter. And we'll meet that one true living God. And I began to think about that. And I began to think about our theme verse that we have for, for this seven deadly sins. Now, it's kind of been loosely in there, but it's John 10.10. 10. And John 10.10 10 says this, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so they may have life and have it in abundance. See, the thief that is mentioned here, Jesus is talking about a sheep pen and somebody coming and trying to steal the sheep. He is referring to Satan. And as he refers to Satan, he, he is telling us the desire of Satan is to ruin and destroy our lives. The desire of Satan is, is to, to really come and steal and kill and destroy our joy, to destroy our purpose, to destroy our very existence. That is what he wants, and, and because he is the great deceiver, he's not going to lay out his plans in front of us and say, guys, I'm just here to destroy your lives. What he's going to do is he's, he's going to take a, a whispering approach in our ear, and he's going to use the things that are already naturally in us. He's going to mess with our minds by attacking our weaknesses. He, he's going to see our sinful nature. He's going to know our rebellious hearts. He's going to use that desire for self that we've talked about for so long over these last eight weeks to come between us and God. And he has played and he has prayed on that since Genesis chapter 3. And he's done that in our lives, and he's done that in multiple people's lives around. And he uses that selfishness against us. And in our self-glorification, which eventually will lead to self-destruction, he uses the things we've been talking about. He uses the pride, and the gluttony, and the greed, and the sloth, and, and all of the things that we have talked about and will continue to talk about. He uses that against us and against our relationship with God. Satan uses these sins to steal and to kill and destroy us. To steal and kill and destroy our joy, to steal and kill and destroy our purpose, to steal and to destroy our passion and our love. 
That, that's what he does, and that's what he wants to do. He wants to destroy that abundant life that John 10.10 10 says that, the, that Jesus came to give us. He wants to destroy that. He wants to come between us. And I ask the question, why do we exist? And what is your purpose? And what is the reason that you are here? And I said you can only find that answer in God. But the question is, is what is that answer? What is that answer? And you probably know that the Bible tells us that God is love. Not that God loves, but that he is the definition of love. He loves, and out of the overflow of his love, he created us. He created us to be in a relationship with him. He created us to love and to be loved, and he created us for his purposes. Now, I don't want you to jump to a conclusion and say, well, wait a second, do you think that God was lonely and that's why we exist? He wasn't lonely at all because he's forever been in community with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the, the, the Holy Trinity. And it wasn't like he was standing in the garden one day with a football in his hand going, man, I wish I had somebody to play catch with. And so he whipped up Adam out of the dirt and said, here we go. I got myself a son. That, that wasn't what it was. He created us to love. He created us out of love and for the purpose of love. That is what our purpose is. That is why we exist. I mean, we've talked about it before, but when Jesus is asked by one of the the Pharisees, one of the, the teachers of the law, he says, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, to love the Lord your God, in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That is the great commandment. Why is it the great commandment? Because it is our great purpose, to love God and to love others. And we look at that and we say, you know what, that sounds great and all. But is there anything more? As a matter of fact, Genesis tells us about the more. But what else we were created for? Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And I want you to see that this is before the fall that happens in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, he says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, they will rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock and the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. Then if you go down to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, it says this. The Lord God took man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. See, these four, four verses, they tell me why I was created. They tell me how I was created. They tell me I was created in uniqueness, that I am different than anything else that is out there on this planet. It also tells me that I'm made in His image, that I'm giving purpose, that I've been given design, that I've been given responsibility, and I've been given expectations. So not only are we created to love God and love others, we're also created with responsibility. We're also created to work. And I know that's a crazy thought to think about. You thought maybe work came after the fall, but it came before the fall. It's not a result of sin that we got stuck having to work. It's what God created us for. And I tell you that today, and you're like, why are we even bothering talking about that? Because today's seven deadly sin, number six, is sloth. Sloth. And, and what exactly is sloth. Well, sloth is a rejection of all the things that we're created for. 
Sloth is a rejection of God saying, love me, love others, work. Have responsibility. Sloth says, I don't want any of that. And when we really look at the definition, the culture of, of definition is really tied up in the animal. The animal of sloth. To be slow and to be lazy. That's what we think of when sloth, with sloth. But when we look at God's definition, it really is so much bigger than that. So much bigger than that. As a matter of fact, when you look at the words that it comes from, in the, in the Latin, the word is acedia. Acedia, and it actually means to be negligent or indifferent. To be negligent means I don't care about anything. To be indifferent about spiritual matters. To just go through the motions. The Greek word is nothros. And it means an unexciting person or something that has lost its drive. Something that has lost its drive. I'm not sure if you've ever been in a car before that has lost its drive. Not a good thing. Because guess what? When you have it in neutral, when you have it in idle, it's only doing one thing. And that is consuming fuel. It's not serving any other purpose. And oftentimes in our lives, when we become slothful, when we become idle, we are just there to consume and we're not serving any other purpose. And that's a crazy thing to think about. But actually, 2 Thessalonians reminds us to not live idle lives. But yet, that's where we hang out. We hang out in that idol, idleness. There's a lady by the name of Dorothy Sayers, and if you would follow us on our Facebook page, you saw me post this quote this week, but I want to read it for you. It's great what it talks about with sloth. It says, the sixth deadly sin is named by the church, acidia or sloth. In the world, it calls itself tolerance, but in hell, it calls itself despair. It is accomplice of the other sins and their worst punishment. It is a sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there is nothing it would die for. That is sloth. That's us. Way too often in our lives, that is the description of our culture. The best way I think we would call it is the word apathy. Or if you like to speak in emojis, meh. Meh. And really, because it's Halloween right now, I thought of this. We could have easily tied this into being a zombie. Because the idea of a zombie is an undead, walking dead person that has no will only wants to consume. And did you know, I, I learned this about zombies this week as I was doing the study, as crazy as this is. Zombies eat brains, just in case you're wondering that, in case you, you're not into the zombie thing. But they eat brains, and the reason why they eat brains, and that's where they target, is because there's serotonin in the brain. Well, serotonin's the chemical that makes us happy. They just want to be happy, so they consume as much as they possibly can. And guess what? They're never satisfied. And they continue to eat more, and they continue to eat more, and they continue to eat more. Isn't that us sometimes? That we just have this desire to be happy, and we eat more, and we, oh, wait, we're going to talk about gluttony next week. So come back next week to hear more about that. But here's the thing, apathy, it, it, it is us not having a purpose, us not having a will, us not having a drive. It's just, meh, meh, whatever, I don't care. It's no big deal to me, and I look at that, and I say, you know, God gave us purpose, to love him, to love others, to take responsibility. But apathy, it goes in the face of that. It goes in the face saying, God, you obviously don't know what you're doing. And it's saying, you know, I'm just going to do my own thing. 
Because what you've called to do is too challenging. It's too much work. It's too overwhelming. You know, to love people, have you met people? I don't want to love people. And and to, to love God with my all, man, that's a lot. That's a lot of commitment. And apathy says, you know what, I don't really want to be committed to anything because I want my freedom. I want to be indifferent towards whatever I want to be. Did you know that the opposite of the word love, take a guess what it is. We assume hate. And part of that is because the culture pushes that if we don't love somebody for who they are, we obviously hate them. That's not the truth. The opposite of the word love is indifference. Saying I don't care. Which is funny because it comes in the word sloth and it comes in the word apathy's definitions. Isn't that crazy to think about? That somehow, some way, when we're going against God, and He's called us to love, that we're doing the opposite by just being indifferent and saying, I don't care. It's one of those things that I've thought about because apathy and sloth and meh call laziness in our culture is really about selfishness. It's really about a slothful person wanting complete freedom. I want to be free from all burdens, all responsibilities. I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it without anybody telling me anything else. I don't want the responsibility that God's given me. And it's interesting how much the Bible actually talks about slothfulness and the slackered and the sluggard. And it's especially in the book of Proverbs. So if you have your Bibles and you want to flip with us through Proverbs, you can or you can write it down and follow along on the screen. It says this, Proverbs 24, starting in verse 30. I went by the field of a slacker and by the vineyard of one lacking sense. Thistles had come up everywhere. Weeds covered the ground and the stone wall was ruined. I saw it and took it to heart. I looked and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber and your need like a bandit. You know, as I read that, it's almost like you're reading the exact opposite of what we're called to do in Genesis chapter 2, what man's responsibility is to do in chapter 2. Two chapters later in verse 20, or chapter 26, verse 13, it says, the slacker says, there's a lion in the road, a lion in the public square. That's why I'm not going to go outside to work. I think there's a little bit of sarcasm in this passage here, because I don't know about you, but I've never gone outside and encountered a lion. But he says, there's a possibility, so I'm not going to go out and do any work. It says this in verse 14, a door turns on its hinges and a slacker on his bed. Basically, this was the previous version of the snooze button before we ever had to have the snooze button. You just turn over, forget about it, I really don't care. A slacker buries his hand in the bowl. He's too weary to bring it to his mouth. He never finishes anything he starts, not even eating. In his own eyes, a slacker is wise or is wiser than seven who can answer sensibly. There's always a reason. There's always an excuse. There's always a justification that argues his point no matter how intelligent the other people are or how ridiculous a response that he has. He's going to have it and he's going to believe his own. Does that sound like culture today? Does that sound a little bit of like what's going on even today? See, it's more than just laziness. Because laziness, it's a physical issue. Apathy and sloth, they're a heart issue. 
They come right down to our heart. This is rebellion against the plan that God has for us. See, Satan wants to steal. He wants to kill. He wants us to destroy. So he uses that slothful behavior to cause rebellion between us and God. I'm going to believe what I want to believe. I'm going to live my life the way I want. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to be free from rules. I'm going to be free from responsibilities because those impede on my freedom. I don't really care about anything else but me. I really don't care about anything else. I wish I could say that this was written to people thousands of years ago and that we've gotten better since then. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Unfortunately, it's not the case. And unfortunately, it describes way too many in the churches around the United States as well. Way too many people. So you have way too many people say that they love God and they love others, yet they are indifferent, which is the opposite of love, towards all the things that God's called them to do. They're indifferent towards that. They have a huge case of spiritual apathy, and they just don't care anymore. I remember the very first church conference I got to go to. It was 1999. Christy and I had only been married for about a year. We got to go to San Diego and go to the Youth Specialties Youth Workers Convention. I'd never been to a conference before. where We walked a little bit late. We're there to sign up, and as we're there to sign up, there's some music playing in the background. And I looked at the guy at the registration table. I'm like, man, that sounds like Third Day. Now, if you were a Christian in the 90s, you probably know Third Day. And I'm hearing it. I'm like, man, that sounds like Third Day. And the guy's like, well, it's because it is. I'm like, what? What are we doing out here? So I got inside really fast. We sat down. I'm like, oh, this is great. And this guy gets up there. His name is Tony Campolo. And maybe you've heard of Tony Campolo before. Uh, maybe you haven't. He was one of the big guys on Youth Specialties. And he starts off his speaking with this. And I want to preface this with the fact that I'm coming out of a very conservative Baptist church to hear this for the first time. He said, guys, I just want to let you know something. There are millions of people dying and going to hell. But most of you here don't give a... And then, since we've been talking emojis this morning, I'm just going to throw that one up there. And... You hear this, did he just drop an S-bomb? And yes, he did. And he goes, you know what the sad thing is? More of you in here care about the fact that I used the S-word rather than the fact that I told you millions of people are dying and going to hell. That was 1999, and that still stuck with me. And I will tell you, when I walked out of that conference, I still went because I came from the conservative background and was like, wait a second, I can't believe he still used the S word. At a church conference, unbelievable. You know, if you read the Bible, Paul doesn't hold back sometimes. I think we got a nice translation sometimes. But, but the reality is, I was walking by people in San Diego. All I could think about was, I can't believe he did that. I can't believe he did that. And those people I was walking by, they were ones that were dying and going to hell. Apathy has crept in, and we get so caught up in the things that are going on in our lives. And, you know, as we really look at it, we say, but I'm doing so much. See, apathy isn't laziness. We can do all we want to do, and we do do a lot of things. We do do a lot of things, but the problem is we waste too much time on being something or doing something that God doesn't want us to do or want us to be. We have created in our own mind what we think it needs to be. And, you know, that's why I believe he wrote in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, he wrote seven letters to seven churches. And those seven letters to seven churches were to talk to them about where they were at. And I got to thinking about this this week. If God sat down and wrote me a specific letter, what would he say to me? 
If God sat down and wrote you a specific letter, what would he say to you? If God sat down and wrote a specific letter to our church, what would he say to us? Would it be something like this? It's found in Revelation chapter 2, when he writes to the church at Ephesus. Starting in verse 1, it says, Write to the angels of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. Man, that is an awesome way to start it out. I know all the good things you've done. However, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had first. You've lost your first love. What is apathy? Indifference. What's indifference? The opposite of love. You become apathetic. Remember that then how far you've fallen. Repent and do the work you did at first. Otherwise, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Would that be the letter we get? Or would we be more like the letter that is found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15, when he's writing to the church at Laodicea? He says, I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either cold or hot. Where's your passion? Are you just, why are you just wandering around apathetic? I created for you for more than this. Verse 16 says, so because you were lukewarm, I'm neither hot nor cold. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. So you say, I'm rich and I become wealthy and I need nothing. Would that describe much of what we have going on right now? I think about the guy or woman, I don't even know who it was, in South Carolina who won the $1.6 billion mega millions this week. Coming from a town of 22,000 people, I got to do the math, and after all the stuff was said and done, supposed to make like $686 million that he or she could literally give $10 million per person in the town of 22,000 people and, and really have money left over. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of money. You think they're going to be okay? You think they're really going to be okay, or is it going to be like this when he says, and you don't even realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed in your shameful nakedness not exposed, and ointment to spread in your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. So be zealous and repent. Have passion. Enthusiasm towards God. Quit being lukewarm. Quit making me sick to my stomach. That's a call out. Is God writing that to our church? Apathy is not good. Passion is. But the problem is, in the church, we lack passion. And it's not because, because we, we've done certain things, because we try and manufacture passion. We'll put on a big show. We'll make smoke machines. We'll have fire. Christy went to a, a conference this week. that She said that they, the, the first song they sang it was Light Em Up. And they had fire shooting out of the stage. I'm like, that'd be awesome and all, but we got kind of a problem back here in the back if we did that. So I don't know if we can do that. And, and, and so we try and manufacture that. And we manufacture the emotion that'll last for a little while, but it doesn't last all week. That passion, it burns from the inside. And that is what we lack. And we lack it for a handful of reasons. One, because I think we forget how amazing God is. Because one way we lose passion is by going like this. We say, well... That was amazing, but now it's common. God is never common. God is never so familiar that we have forgotten how amazing His grace and His goodness is to us. 
The second thing is, is we live in a culture that, that really either stifles passion, passion or if you're passionate, you're the weird one that makes the news. And you don't want to be the weird one that makes the news. And I look at that and I say, well, maybe that's it. Maybe we've lost it because of failure and disappointment. We've talked about anger. We've talked about different things, that unmet expectations inside. And I don't want to get passionate about it because it's only going to fall through again. We've lost it because our culture has told us there's no purpose beyond ourselves. And when you're only focusing on yourselves, there's nothing to be passionate about. In our apathy, comfort wins over effort. Easy wins over right. We say, I don't want to submit here. I don't want to give there. I don't want to do these things. No responsibility, just freedom. We literally reject the order that God has placed in our lives. And you know what happens when you reject order? Chaos. Chaos is the result. We don't know our purpose. We don't want to know our expectations. We don't want the responsibilities on us. And we especially don't want demands or commands put on us. That is where we live. That is what we want when we're apathetic. You know, it's funny. Yesterday, I spent two and a half hours cleaning my van to get ready for trunk or treat for it to get destroyed today. And in that, there's some, there's some maybe I'm weird like this, but there's some satisfaction that comes from cleaning my car. There's some satisfaction that comes from cleaning my house. There's some satisfaction that actually comes from making my bed. Because in all reality, why do we make our bed? We're only going to get back in it again, right? And I think it has to do with discipline, but I also think it has to do with order. Because when your bed's a mess, that's just a small picture of chaos. And because we are created with order and not to have chaos, I believe truly that God has created us to have those small things remind us of the big picture of what we're actually created for, to take responsibility. Now, I'm not sure why all the pillows on the bed, but the rest of it is order and neatness. And that's what I think God has created us for, and we miss that. I mean, think about the feeling you get when something happens. Do you remember the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and Jesus came to give us life, and life abundantly, a passionate life, but apathy, it destroys that. Apathy pulls that away, but what does apathy really rob us of? Because I think when we focus on that, it'll help us to say, I can't be apathetic, because it has literally caused me first to miss opportunities, to miss opportunities to see God at work. To see God do amazing things. We know what we should do, but we don't do it. And it's called procrastination. In New Mexico, we call it carpe manana. Seize tomorrow. We'll get there eventually. It's going to happen. And you know, when we have that in our mindsets, we're saying, I don't really care about today because it's really not that important. I don't really care about you because you're not that important. I don't really care about what's going on. It's too big of a task. And maybe probably my favorite excuse to use is, well, if I don't do it, somebody else will, and I don't want to rob their opportunity. So I just, well, I'm not going to do it. And how often do we do that? See, apathy finds an excuse. The second thing I think apathy does is it kills relationships because of those missed opportunities, because of the things that we have, because of the things we've been given. And we say, I just don't care. I just don't want to. That self-absorbed mentality leaks its way into our relationships with others. Love God and love others is a great saying. It looks good on the church bulletin. But to actually do it, too much effort. Because in reality, I don't want to be there for you when you need me. Because it's going to impede on my freedom. 
It's amazing you see it in the church, but it's even more amazing you see it in the culture. In the culture, we, they now have a term called delayed marriages. And the reason why is because people don't want to be tied down. They don't want the responsibility that comes with having a ring on your finger and a covenant that has been signed. They don't want that. And even more so, do you realize the fastest growing demographic in the United States is that of the intentionally unemployed? Intentionally unemployed. They choose to be unemployed because they don't want the burden of work. And not only do they not want the burden of work, they know that somebody else will take them on as a burden and they can basically mooch and sponge off of somebody else. Because everything else impedes my freedom. That is our culture. That is where we're at. And that, I'd like to say it's a small percentage of the population, but unfortunately it's not. And it's growing bigger and bigger. Third thing is, is apathy breeds boredom. Apathy breeds boredom. We stop being by, impressed by other things, don't we? Isn't that when boredom happens? When, when things become not as impressive anymore? You know, the crazy thing is, we assume being bored means I don't have anything to do. That's what my kids think. God, I don't have anything to do. I'm like, I'll give you something to do. We got dogs out back. They leave stuff behind them. We've already seen the emoji. Come on. Go on. Oh, but I don't want to do that. Then don't tell me you don't have anything to do because I can give you something to do. Because really the idea for boredom is that being bored means I'm not satisfied with what I do have to do. And when we think about it, when we don't know our purpose and we don't know why we exist and we don't know those things, of course we're going to be bored because we don't know what we have to do. We don't know those things. And the thing is, is you see, you know what, because I don't know it, I'm just not going to do anything. And if I'm not going to do anything, that means I'm going to be bored. And if I'm going to be bored, that just means that now I've got to find something to do. And finding something to do has resulted in consumption. That whole idea of zombie, consume, 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 but never satisfied, that's what we do. We'll talk more about it next week, but I want you to picture this. When did the term binge-watching become a regular thing? When you sit down, you watch a trilogy of a movie, or you sit down, you watch an entire season on a, on a Sunday of a TV show. Well, well binge-watching is all about consumption. Do you realize that teenagers spend seven hours a day on media? Consuming media. Did you realize that adults will check their social media statuses anywhere between 20 and 40 times a day, resulting in two and a half to three hours of sitting and staring at a screen about somebody else's stuff? You're saying, I need to escape. I'm bored with my life, so I need to escape to somebody else. So I'm going to watch TV, I'm going to watch movies, or I'm going to watch somebody else's vacation photos, and hopefully those things will fill me up. Do they? Absolutely not. But yet, that's what it is. It's consumption. We have to escape. That boredom is there. Look what the book of Proverbs says about it in Proverbs 13.4. A slacker craves, yet has nothing. But the diligent, the one who works, is fully satisfied. Proverbs 21, 25 and 26 says, A slacker's craving will kill him because his hands refuse to work. I find this funny that this was written thousands of years before Jesus said, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he says here, slacker's cravings will kill him. He is filled with cravings all day long, but the righteous give and don't hold back. See, when we give, when we love, when we work, we're filled up. 
There's a finding of satisfaction. I truly believe that's why you come back more full on a mission trip. Even though you're drained of your energy, you were full because you were giving, you were working, and you were loving. But when we are constantly in consumer mode, we're never satisfied. We crave all day long with no contentment. The next thing I think apathy brings is despair. Despair. Apathy will literally suck the life right out of you. It will suck the joy right out of you. It sucks the purpose right out of you. All of your energy. Life doesn't matter. Love doesn't matter. I really don't need or care about anything. That's when we start saying God's not worth pursuing. I have no passion. I have no energy. His word is irrelevant to my life. It's amazing when I hear that from people and they say, well, it was written by men thousands of years ago. There's no way it could apply to me today. There might be some good information there, but it's just not applicable. I'm going to go read my horoscope. I'm going to go read a fortune cookie. I'm going to hang on the words of everybody on Facebook, also written by men, much dumber men. But we'll hang on those and not on the word of God because apathy brings despair. It steals our life. But here's the real thing. We know what it brings, but how do we get out of it? How do we break apathy? And I'm going to give you the church answer. The church answer is Jesus. Jesus. Because everything about Jesus, everything about Jesus was the opposite of apathy. Everything about Jesus was the opposite of sloth. Our goal in our life is to be more like Jesus. Our goal as a church, our mission as a church is to move people closer to Jesus in a growing relationship with him. The reason why is because he is the opposite of sloth. He is the opposite of apathy. So the first thing we need to do is we need to examine ourselves. We need to do a little self-examination. Where is apathy in my life? Because there's so many areas that could come up, come up in your career. And we need to look, when we look at our career, and we say, am I just going through the motions? Am I really hating life being here? We need to look at our marriages, ask the same two questions. Am I just going through the motions? Am I just hating being here? Look at our physical, just going through the motions. I really don't care. Look at our mental, going through the motions. I really don't care. And especially, and the most dangerous one, is the spiritual. Am I just going through the motions, and I really don't care? Now, we can lie to everybody else, but you can't lie to God. I think we need to sit down and do what David did in Psalm 139, verse 23, where he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. Test me and know my concerns. God, where have I lost my passion? And a better question is, is why have I lost my passion? And what can I do to fix it? Has my lack of desire caused me to lose my focus and lose my passion and just go through the motions where on the outside I look very spiritual, but the inside I'm just a neutral. I'm just idle. And then we say, well, why would it matter when we find out? So I think the next thing we need to do is we need to ask God to show us the eternal significance in what you are doing right now. What is the eternal significance of why God has you where you're at right now? Did you know that we become the people we are by what we choose to do again and again and again? We become the people that we are by choosing to do what we are doing again and again and again. And at first glance, you know what that sounds like? Monotony. Monotony. 
You know what monotony sounds like? Boring. And when we look at that, we say, I just want something different. I don't want to do the same thing again and again and again. But God says, I have you here for a purpose. We need to figure out what that eternal significance is. What you do and how you do it, it makes you you and it affects everyone around you. It affects every single one of us. You know, as we look at work, do your work well. And not just do your work well, but glorify God in that process. Bring order to chaos. That's what we are called to do from the very beginning. Bring order to chaos, to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over it. That was the original calling. At school, do the same thing. Do school well. Glorify God every day. At home, do home well. Glorify God every day. I don't care if you are single or married or divorced or, or widowed or an adult or a child. Have no kids or raising a small army. It, do home well because people are watching. And people who are apathetic saying, I just don't think I can, they can look at you and say, well, there's something different about that guy. And you know what that different is? You're following Jesus. Fill the earth with order, not chaos. But monotony gets in the way of our freedom. It gets in the way of what I want to do. It almost creates an inconvenience. But not if we look through God's eyes. I mean, think about Jesus for just a second. He came with a purpose. That work that he was given was not easy, yet he did it. And think about just him as a human being. He was a carpenter. Do you think Jesus made junky tables? Or do you think he put his time and his effort into doing it right? He was a son. Did, did, did he make a junky son? A leech? A moosh? Or did he love his mother well? Did he love his father well? He was a leader. How did he lead? He was a worshiper. How often do you read in the scripture that he was in the synagogues or went along uh, off by himself to pray? How did he do in that? He is our Savior, and even asked when, by God to, to do what he was supposed to do, he, he came back and said, is there any other way? And God said, nope. So he did it. He went to the cross to bear our sins. He didn't quit because his goal was to glorify the Father, and he did exactly that. What is the purpose of our desire to change? Is it to glorify ourselves and say, look how much I've changed, or is it look and say, look what God is doing in me and how he's working it all? And I think that leads to our next one, to set godly goals. Set godly goals in your home. Set godly goals at work. Set godly goals in your school. Set godly goals just in your life in general. Set godly goals and reach for them. Reach for them. Apathy makes excuses. Passion finds a way. Apathy makes excuses and passion finds a way. I think that leads us to our next one. Stop making excuses and just start doing God's will. Start doing God's will, what he has called you to do. Can I ask you a question? Do you really want to know God? Do you really want to know God, or do you just want to be a person that is known for wanting to know God? Because that's the inside versus the outside. That's the spiritually neutral to the spiritually passionate. I want to know God. And I want to know his will, and I want to know what he has for me. Read through Paul's letters after he gets 
saved, after he meets Jesus, how much does his life change? How much does he pour into being what Christ wants him to be? Whether in prison or whether being beaten or whether being spit upon or whether being thrown out of a city, any of those things, he didn't care. He was moving forward with that. And he actually says, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's calling us to that. We need to stop making excuses and start doing God's will. Will In Romans chapter 12, Paul writes in verse 11, don't lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. See, a lack of passion causes the opposite. It's about serving myself and my needs. We find apathy in the church, a lack of concern for outreach and missions, a lack of concern for in-reach and growth, a lack of concern for pouring into the next generation. Why? I'm going to ask you a very specific question here. Why is it so difficult to find people to work in kids' ministry? Why is it so difficult? It shouldn't be. We should have too many people doing it because we're investing in the next generation. But yet people go back to that same excuse, well, if I don't do it, somebody else will. And I'm so thankful that somebody else is, but maybe God is calling you to take that step up. To work in a ministry, to pour into the next generation, to, to find the, your, your passion and not be so apathetic towards outreach and messages, not be apathetic towards inreach and serving, but invest. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy, fan the flame reignite the fire. Find your first love going back to Revelation. Find that. We lose passion because we find the amazing common. In our men's Bible study, we've been going through Ephesians chapter, well, we're in Ephesians chapter 3 this last week. But the first two chapters, and really even the third chapter of Ephesians, talk about the amazingness of God. Can I just read a couple of the highlights for you? It says we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. We've been chosen by God. We've been predestined, adopted, and redeemed by the blood. We're lined up with the inheritance. We're given the Holy Spirit. We're made alive with Christ, saved by grace, created to do good works. And everybody in here should be like, yeah! And everybody else in here really is like, is he almost done? Is he done kind of poking and prodding me? See, this is one of those messages even this week. I'm like, oh, I'd rather not do it. I don't want to talk about this. But the reality is, Paul lays out those things, and he says, don't forget how amazing God is and what he has done for your life. Don't ever let it become common. And that's why he ends chapter 3 with a prayer. He actually says, for this reason, all the reasons I just listed, plus a couple more that I missed, for this reason, I pray for you. I pray for you, and this is what it says in verse um, 16. It says, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. I want you to be on fire inside, alive. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love, not indifference, love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond. So we can't manufacture this passion on our own. We have to ask him for it. To him who is able to do above and beyond all that we think, according to the power that has worked within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is 
His prayer for the church at Ephesus, that same one that Christ wrote to, that is our prayer today, that we give glory to God and that he fills us with his spirit that we can feel the fullness of God. Ask God to rekindle the passion this morning. Remember who he is, that he reminds you of that first love that you had. Don't you ever look at people who when they first come to Jesus, they're like, Ooh, I don't know who to tell or what to say, but I'm excited about it. And then when we finally do know who to tell and what to say, we don't say a word. Rekindle that fire. Glorify God in our everyday, ordinary, basic lives. Let's kick meh to the curb. Let's stop being the walking dead. Let's understand we are made alive in Christ. Let's live it. You know why we need to live it? Because God is worthy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. And thank you for what you do. I thank you for the way you speak, even when I can't. God, thank you for the way you work in our hearts, the way you work in our minds. And I pray, God, that today isn't just a rah-rah message that by the end of today we forget about it. But instead, today is a day that we say, God, rekindle my passion. Fan the flame. Help me remember my first love, that I've been made alive in your son, Jesus Christ, to live for your glory and your honor. Not for my glory, not for my honor, not for consumption of worldly things, but consuming you. Because you, God, are the one thing that will last in all of this world. You are the thing we need to chase after, not the stuff. Open our eyes to that today, God, because only you can do it. Apathy makes execution, but passion, passion finds a way. Help us to find a way. We pray it in your name. Amen. I'm going to jump down here in the front. I would love to pray with you, but in all honesty, I think this is between you and him. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ, and, and that's where it needs to start at. That is where I would love to come in. But maybe you're just like, I, I am struggling. I'm struggling in my work. I'm just struggling in school. I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm struggling in my life. Just apathy. I got no drive. Let's pray together. Or maybe you just need to talk to God about it. I'll be down in the front if you want to talk with me. That's a pretty convicting question <clears throat> that Matt posed. Do we really want to know God or do we just want to someone who wants to know God. This past uh, week, I was in the mountains, and that's a great time to sit and reflect when there's not a whole lot of distractions. One thing it did was make me realize how much older I'm getting, and that thinking my body, my body isn't what it used to be, so as I'm sitting up there, I'm like, how that hurts, you know? really convicted because I had this, this interesting dream and uh, I'm up on this mountaintop and I'm just kind of watching over this, this valley and I was convicted by this question of and I was thinking of the song um, Always Forever and in this song part of the, the chorus is I would lay down my life just to be by your side I was struck with that on this mountain going, right now, I said, I feel like there's a lot of things that I don't want to leave. 
happily lay down my life just to be in your presence. And right now, if I had the choice, I would be very hesitant. And I was just, I had to have one of those, you know, confession moments. And I think a lot of it stems from what Matt is talking about, just forgetting who our God is, his amazingness. And Bob, one of our elders here at the Paragon, he sends out messages very often throughout the week and we stay in contact with each other we chat through text but he sent out a message that was basically in reference to you know when we sing songs about God or when we're having our time of worship with God is it all about our emotion or is it about his praise and his glorification and so as I was picking songs this week getting the music together I just I was like I want to close with a song that just glorifies God, just puts an emphasis on his, his glory and who he is and the fact that it's not about how we feel, whether we think that God is good because it's an emotional feel or whether he's good because it's a biblical definition of good. And so uh, the song, Great I Am, it's really just, just talking about our God that he's the great I am there's none that's worthy besides him and the mountains will shake before him the demons they run and flee at the mention of his name there's no power in hell that can stand against the great I am and so I just want us to close this service just reflecting on our God and his glory and his greatness and as Matt said the awesomeness